This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work. I'm Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I'm thrilled to bring you the first installment of our special series, done in collaboration with Reframe. They're a partnership between the Sundance Institute and WIF Los Angeles. The series, Reframe Voices of Change, is a collection of interviews we did with organizational leaders, activists, artists, and directors. And through it, we considered the essential relationship between who our media makers are and the content that we consume. We hope you'll join us in celebrating their bravery, creativity, and tenacity, and that it will inspire you to raise up your own voice in the process. This is my conversation with Ai-jen Poo, who's director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. It was recorded at the Sundance Film Festival at that moment just before COVID-19 emerged. And I began by asking her, what on earth was she doing at Sundance? Well, I'm here because this is a gathering of storytellers and culture makers. And Um, Part of what I do as an activist and organizer is try to change our culture and our society to work better for more people, especially women. So how does this connect specifically to the work of the NDWA? Well, if you think about it, so I represent this workforce of women who work in our homes, doing the caregiving and cleaning work that powers everything else. If you think about it, the nannies who take care of our kids, the home care workers who take care of our aging parents or loved ones with disabilities, um, the house cleaners who maintain order in our chaotic lives, they make it possible for us to go out and do what we do in the world every day, knowing that some of the most important aspects of our lives are in really good hands. Um, And yet it's completely invisible, right? It's like when you think about work, the last image that comes to your mind is the caregiver. It's true. And in fact, in our culture, we don't even refer to it as work. We call it help. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. And it's not an accident. It's been associated with women and oftentimes assumed that women will just do it. Right? It's been taken for granted. And as a profession, caregivers, domestic workers, have been um, disproportionately women of color. In fact, some of our first domestic workers in this country were enslaved African women. And so there's a long history of culturally ways that we've devalued this work and the people who do it. And I believe that storytellers have a huge role to play in transforming that and helping us value this work in a totally different way and humanizing the people who do it. And so that we're both acknowledging who they are. Mm-hmm. and um, the relationship we have with them and their importance to how the rest of the world is functioning. Exactly, exactly. And I'll say this too, I think a lot of people who think about advocacy or activism think about, they do, we do often talk about changing hearts and minds, but mostly what we're engaged with is more changing minds, right? Making the rational argument, doing the research, showing the data, And there's so much about our lives that is not rational, right? (laughs) We live in our emotional lives. And so many of our behaviors and our choices are dictated by emotion. Even when you said, pointed out that we define this 
component of the workforce as help. Right. It conjured two thoughts for me. One is one that can sound pejorative, like the help. Right. And not even people with names and titles and roles. It's a profession. And it is a profession. Yeah. And the other is the intimacy that comes with it. That's right. How much um, of these two factors, that these are essential people in the most private places in our lives, um, and the fact that it comes from a history of kind of disregard right. and disempowerment. How much of that is, is woven together in the kinds of stories that you're trying to tell and trying to help get heard? I mean, I think um, there, the, the, the beliefs and the norms that are underneath how we value or don't value work are so profound and so deeply held. Um, and you really do have to, to get in there into the human story behind how interdependent we are and how much our culture has made some, some of the most important relationships in our lives invisible. Um, and so one great example of a story that allowed us the opportunity to transform this is the film Roma. Mm-hmm. Last year, right, Alfonso Cuaron made this beautiful film, and at the center of the film was an indigenous domestic worker named Cleo. And this whole notion of representation matters, you know, is is true and profound and almost, you know, trite at this point. But for us, having a major feature film where the protagonist was an indigenous domestic worker when do you ever really see a domestic worker as a protagonist in popular culture, right, ever? And then to be living and experiencing the world through her eyes for hours, understanding the family dynamic, the political dynamic, the historical dynamic, through the perspective and the experience of an indigenous woman whose life is spent supporting another family is just completely transformative. What it meant for our members to see that film, to see their own stories and experiences reflected back was so profound and transformative. And the space it created for us as a social movement to spark conversations with people all over this country and the world really about their own relationships to the unsung heroines in their lives, the Cleos all over the world who support us, was powerful. And that's, I think, just scratching the surface of the potential for storytelling to change the world around us. When uh, my sweetheart and I saw the film together, um, and we were talking about it afterwards, all those things came up for us. The impulse to identify at first with um, the woman of the household and realizing she was not the main protagonist and in many ways part of the problem. Um, But also it led us to talk about Cleo's emotional experiences, how heart-wrenching they were, but also the lack of structure, protection, healthcare, a range of issues in the world um, around her that were not, that she had to fight against just to meet fundamental needs and get through the world every day. Um, That showed me how multi-pronged the challenges. Yep. 
Um, talk to me about how, as an organizer mm-hmm. and as an activist, mm-hmm. um, you're addressing those multiple problems because yep. it seems like there's a, a very clear strategy to what you're doing with the NDWA that is about that. Right. No, it absolutely is. If you think about it, right, this work is so critical and yet so undervalued to the point where um, most women do this work work incredibly hard are primary income earners for their families and do so really and are not able to make ends meet, pay the bills, don't have access to a safety net or benefits or even job security. And there are so many reasons for why that is the case. First, we already talked about the kind of cultural association with women and women of color and the devaluing Mm -hmm. of the contributions of women in our culture in general, and in our economy in general. But there's also a long history of legal exclusions from some of the most basic labor rights that you and I take for granted when we go to work every day. Um, in the 1930s, when our Congress was debating uh, the New Deal labor laws that are kind of the foundation of our country's protections for workers, Southern members of Congress refused to support them if they included protections for farm workers and domestic workers who were black at the time. And so in, in that uh, concession, Congress enacted these sweeping labor laws and excluded explicitly domestic workers. So this is a, an acute and I think often overlooked or misunderstood example of how um, Slavery as yes. a practice is still um, influencing the way we operate as a country today in very direct ways. Absolutely. And how specifically the imprint of anti-black racism has affected generations of women who've done this work of all races. Right. So this legacy of slavery has affected millions and millions of women who do this work. Black, Asian, Latino, white who have never been recognized equally as workers. Um, To be perfectly honest, the first time I really connected your face with your name and the work that you're doing was when I saw you with your fabulous date to the Golden Globes (laughs) in 2018 and you went with Meryl Streep. Um, It was, by the way, an excellent date. (laughs) I'm not surprised. (laughs) Um, So at that moment, I think like a lot of other people, I was trying to connect the dots between what Hayata understood about the movement and why at the moment of this hashtag MeToo awakening, Mm -hmm. um, it was important for you to be in front of the cameras and by her side. And so talk to me about what the hashtag MeToo movement, um, how that connected with what you were doing and where energy is still continuing there. Absolutely. Well, the brilliant leader, Tarana Burke, um, for years has been building, um, trying to raise awareness and building a movement of survivors led by survivors of sexual violence and abuse, um, particularly young women and young black women. And in the moment in 2017, when the hashtag MeToo went viral, it put the stories of survivors of all walks of life center stage. And so we were able to explode this work that Tarana Burke had done to be inclusive of women in every community, in every workplace. I mean, that that moment when in October, was it, in 2017, when Me Too went viral, 
12 million survivors stepped forward to share their stories. And among them were domestic workers, were nannies and house cleaners and home care workers who had dealt with sexual violence and harassment in the workplace under just a tyranny of silence for so long. And what we saw with the Golden Globes and with Time's Up was just this, this desire on the part of women in particular to continue to create space for the stories that we need to hear. Mm -hmm. And women wanting to join forces across industry, across workplaces, across race and generation to say, we're in this together and we're gonna lift each other up. And whether you're in a really visible job um, and like the entertainment industry where you're a celebrity and a movie star or you're working in the shadows behind closed doors in somebody else's home, violence, this kind of violence is unacceptable. And we deserve better. We deserve safety and dignity at work. And we're going to join together until we achieve that. And that moment of the Golden Globes when everybody was wearing black and Oprah lit the room on fire and we all stood together across industries to say, to support survivors first and foremost, and to say, we're going to join together and build this movement um, was a was a signal of, I think, the power to come and the ways that women are organizing these days. Um, it It's still reverberating. And it is, absolutely. And when, from that moment and continuing, I think it did several things for us. It showed us, it connected the dots between the vulnerability of women, even in these privileged positions. Absolutely. And the women that we don't see all over the world. Yep. Um, and it gave a microphone to the movement that I think was part catharsis and part about change going forward. Right. And it revealed this toxic imbalance of power in our workplaces that allows for a culture and economy that values the lives and safety and contribution of men over women. And that is, I think, what we've all really committed to and continue to double down on transforming. Talk to me a little bit about um, the other prongs of your work mm -hmm. that we know the storytelling is helping us to understand and see, but the domestic Workers Bill of Rights and the work that you're doing there and why it's important. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that um, I really try to talk about in the storytelling work that I do and we do as a movement is really telling the story about this moment we're in where our families are transforming. We talk a lot about demographic change in this country, mainly in terms of race, but the other massive demographic shift that's happening right in front of our eyes in our own homes is the aging of America. And the fact, which is a beautiful thing, people forget that aging is actually living. <laughs> it's actually living longer. It's longer to learn and to love and to teach and to connect and all the things. But you have to design for it. And we haven't designed our, our society and our culture and our systems for a world where we're living 20 years longer than we were when we put our safety net in place. We've basically added, first the baby boomers are aging, that whole generation, so mm -hmm. we've got set, you know 10,000 people per day turning 75. That's a staggering number. Every eight seconds somebody turns 75. And then because of advances in healthcare, 
people are living longer than ever before. So my grandmother's demographic of 85 and older is the fastest growing population in America today. So we're about to have this huge older population. We've added a whole generation onto our lifespan, but our systems and our culture hasn't caught up. So we actually have to tell a new story about who we are as Americans that takes into account the fact that we're living longer, our families are changing, and we have different needs, including more caregiving needs, right? And without those changes in our culture and our systems and policies, what ends up happening is it falls disproportionately on people who are already holding too much, like mm -hmm. women, right? So this whole phenomenon of the sandwich generation where so many people, right, raising my hand, in there. are getting panini between <laughs> the pressures of, of caring for our aging parents and our children. It's just completely impossible and untenable. And we have no infrastructure to support it, no, no public programs to support it, no systems. And... The domestic workers that I represent are a huge part of that solution, right? The nannies and the home care workers. But we haven't even invested in their sustainability as a workforce. The average home care worker makes about $15,000 per year. Oh, my God. How are you supposed to survive and raise a family on $15,000 per year? It's completely unsustainable. That's crazy. But it's one of the fastest growing workforces because of this huge demand that I just described. And... It's projected to grow at five times the rate of other occupations because these jobs can't be outsourced and they won't be automated at least anytime soon, right? I don't think we're going to have a, grandma, a robot take care of our grandparents no. anytime soon. No, and right? part of what, um, so sparking a number of questions for yeah. me, so I'm trying to organize my thoughts. So one on the point of compassion, that one of the things that um, happened as I was reading the book mm -hmm. was I saw myself in it in the sandwich generation. My dad is 85. He lives a plane ride away from me. Yep. Um, you're right in and it. And seeing the way that he is changing over time and where assistance, um, seems to become more important as time passes and the economic impossibility. Oh my gosh. Of providing it. Um, like it's a multi, not multi-pronged, like there's multiple panels to this prism. Absolutely. That there's the challenge of the aging person who wants to be independent and um, have agency over their lives and be at home and be in his world, um, how expensive it is to get help. Yep. And um, also how financially challenging that is for the person who provides, who pays for that. He's on a fixed income. Yep. I only make so much money. I have a daughter who's about to go to college. Exactly. And then um, sourcing people who are willing to do the work, able to do the work, and who then are enabled to do the work by being paid adequately and supported. It's a complex problem. It is a complex problem, and we've not invested in solutions. And from any dimension of those prisms you just described, it's not working for anyone. No. It's not like there's somebody over here benefiting from the way things are in the status quo. Like, it's just not working. No, and with the rate of change that you've articulated, mm -hmm. um, the pressures are only going to be greater on all of those places. Exactly, exactly. And so what we're trying to do is build a movement if you think about all the people who are affected by this impending crisis, it's like got to be about a hundred million of us between those of us who need care, will need care, or are managing care for somebody else. 
that's a huge force for change. <laughs> right? Millennials and boomers alone, if they decided to do something, it would get done. I mean, come on. <laughs> so I think that now is our time to transform our caregiving systems. And we have a big idea that we've tried to put out there in the universe this year, releasing it into the universe. Um, and it's called universal family care. The idea that we should have one social insurance fund that we all contribute to, that we can all benefit from, that helps us pay for childcare, elder care, and paid family leave. Oh my God. Basically everything you need to take care of your family while you're working. So it's, um, it's almost like seed money to mm -hmm. keep the population working mm -hmm. and well. Exactly, including the care workers. Now, speaking of those very human home care workers, mm -hmm. um, from what you said before, you know, reminding us that um, they've been categorized in our society, um, even by the words that we use to describe them, in ways that belittle them That's right. and diminish them, That's right. um, without honoring the important role that they play, um, and especially the way that in a more benevolent context, they'll be described like a member of the family because right. that intimacy is such an intense component of the work. That's right. How do we cultivate a new generation, a new workforce that um, is able, mm -hmm. um, are protected, mm -hmm. and find dignity and satisfaction in this work, mm -hmm. and also enough compensation that it's both attractive and sustainable. Yeah, I think it's two forms of change that we need to seek. One is at the story level, the story of this work. This is, if you think about what home care workers do every day, they go to work and they uphold the basic dignity. They make sure that the people who took care of us from when we were little, right, can live another day with dignity, be the authors of their own story for as long as possible. What could be more important? But the way we think about it is as so-called unskilled work. To me, there's skills there. There's huge enormous skills. Enormous skills, enormous capacity, enormous um, talent and tenacity, strength, um, emotional and physical. Exactly. Right. So we've got to culturally really value this work differently for its true worth. Right. And that's about telling the story of how just incredible it is really and difficult and dynamic and fundamental. And then the other piece is around making this a dignified profession materially mm -hmm. through policy change, through making sure that everyone who does this work can earn a living wage with benefits to t the people that we count on to take care of us can actually take care of their own families. Doing this work as a profession seems kind of basic, but we've just, we're so far from that place now. Um, as I started to consider the benefits of the Bill of Rights, mm -hmm. and so what are the key benefits? Why don't you describe them rather than my accidentally reminding them? Yeah, so the Bill of Rights offers basic protections that most of us take for granted, like protection from harassment and discrimination, wage and hour protections, um, and also it does a whole another thing, which is to create a new framework for rights for the 21st century, mm -hmm. including access to benefits, right? 
And in this workforce in particular, we only have one worker per household. There's no water cooler, there's no HR department, there's not even another coworker to go to for support. We have to build in the mechanisms for people to realize their rights and have them enforced. So having paid time off is not just a matter of legislating it, it's also about how we're gonna enforce it. Right. Right? Because even when we think about as a big comparison, um, to Hollywood, yeah. for example. There's lots of lawyers there, right. agents. However, people are vulnerable when they're in a room alone. Absolutely, as we know. And um, even more vulnerable, profoundly more vulnerable, when there's none of that kind of infrastructure or professional support out there to protect them if they can get out of the room in one piece. Exactly, exactly. And we're hearing the devastating human cost of that right now in the context of the Harvey Weinstein mm -hmm. trials and the incredible courage of the silence breakers who are telling that story. I mean, that story is so pervasive across so many parts of our economy where you are often in situations that are isolated, right? It used to be that domestic work was kind of seen as this sort of exotic margin, kind of special type of work at the margins of our economy. But if you think about it now, the conditions that define domestic work, the isolation, the lack of consistent hours, the lack of a contract or benefits or job security, um, all of those insecurities and that isolated dynamic is becoming so much more pervasive across our economy. How much of it is that we don't, we've lost our ability or we didn't learn how to humanize to see the humanity in the people that work in our intimate spaces yeah. or in our aging population. Because it feels like a lack of compassion that we bring to both populations. Absolutely. And how much of it are the day-to-day -day pressures, the economic pressures, the work pressures that people face? Um, is it a lack of humanity on our part? Is it just a lack of systemic um, infrastructure to help us do better? Um, where do you see the problems in each of us? I think it's, um, it's both in each of us and it's structural in that um, I think that we have, there's massive trends that are shaping our economy and the future of work, right? A lot of conversation about automation and artificial intelligence and a drive towards efficiency and convenience and what that can deliver for us. And I think we have a responsibility in this time to look at all the ways that we may have lost the thread of humanity, of equity, of opportunity, and that we are, our economies are over-designed for the consumer experience and under-designed for the user experience of the working person themselves. Um, <laughs> and that the future of work is actually a question of humans, of workers, and all of us, not just the care workers, right? But that a way in which we've lost the thread that what we're supposed to be doing in our economy is also supporting people. And so when you were talking about the absence of the water cooler, um, it's 
in addition to the lack of being seen and being protected. Um, when we, whether it's in a gig economy and we're working alone at home mm-hmm. um, as trained professionals, but particularly domestic workers um, who are not on a digital lifeline to the outside world, right. there's an isolation there is. that um, is both dangerous and I'd imagine quite lonely. Yep, that's right. And what the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights does is it supports a sense of community and connection in that we've created um, what we call a Domestic Workers Standards Board, which is an opportunity for all of the industry stakeholders, whether it's families themselves, agencies that are involved in care work, or the workers themselves, to be at a table together to talk about what should be the standards of fairness right, in this industry so that the future of the care workforce works both for the consumers, the families who need care, and we're delivering the best quality care services um, that every family deserves, and also for the care workforce itself. That was Ai-Jen Poo. She's the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and that was the first of several interviews that you're going to hear that are part of a special series called Reframe Voices of Change. Women at Work and the Wharton School collaborated on the series with Reframe, a partnership with the Sundance Institute and WIF Los Angeles. Credit goes to my fellow producers, Allison Emilio, Patty Hall, Valerie Locascio, and our interns, Sage Holt and Abby Nelson. And of course, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, with special thanks to Angela Bostick, Scott Douglas, and Cade Massey for their support. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.